Bibles over to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to spend uh, most of our time in uh, uh, verses 14 through 31 this morning. We will be looking back because we're going to continue our, our journey to Rome. But if you open up to, and I'm going to be speaking out of the NIV, but Acts chapter 28, I'm going to start in verse 14. Now, if you remember, Paul had been in a prison. He's been wanting to go to Rome. He's going to finally end up there, beginning in verse 14. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, God, uh, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local, the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against our customs, our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to, been, I have asked to see you and talk to you. It is because of the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that you are part of this people. We know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, Christians. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came even in larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining how the kingdom of God, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to you that you will never that you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed eyes. Otherwise they might see with they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there. On his, in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to change uh, the, the way this translates here because this is uh, the word hindrance here is actually one word. It's not two words. It, it, it actually would be Paul spoke with all boldness unhindered or the word could be translated unstoppable. And that's what we want to reflect on this morning. The idea of unstoppable. It's hard to believe that we're already in Acts chapter 28. And we go back to chapter 1, verse 8, where it all began. Remember, it began in Jerusalem. You will be witnesses to me, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then into the outermost parts of the earth. And for Paul and the early Christians, this is now fulfilled in Rome. They have come to the outermost parts of the world. 
They have fulfilled this. And I was reading the book of Acts. Um, several words pop out at you when you read it. I think there were three words that popped out to me. The first word was sent, the title of our series, People Were Sent. The next word that popped out, we see it all through the book of Acts, is the word power. It talks about power a lot. And then the other word is the word witness. It talks about testifying, about witnessing. This morning, we're going to spend most of our time with this word unstoppable. The book of Acts is, is actually the story of God. God is the hero of the book of Acts. He is going to get the message of Jesus Christ out. He's going to use ordinary people to do it, and it will not be stopped. It's going to keep going forward. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a sentence. From humble beginnings comes an uh, irresistible message that is unstoppable. Something very easy to understand, and we're going to build on this. That's going to be our sermon points. And when we get all this put together, we're going to get together and we're going to throw out a little challenge on how we can live in the unstoppable. So let's take our word, and let's begin with the first phrase, from humble beginnings. Because I think it's very important that we never lose the awe and wonder of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to reflect backwards. We're going to go past the beginning of the book of Acts. We're going to go past the crucifixion, and we're going to go to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to do that in, in, in Mark, Mark chapter 1. I think Mark gives us the best introduction to Christ in the Gospels. And so I want to go ahead and spend time with this, and we're going to look at from humble beginnings. So I'm going to read to you from Mark. I'm going to just kind of skip through it, but starting in, in verse 1, we're going to end up down in verse 9. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Let's scroll down to verse 9. And this was uh, John the Baptist's message. After me comes one more powerful than I, whose straps of his sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Then we scroll down to verse 9. Then came Jesus from Nazareth, the Galilean. I love the way, I think it's remarkable, the way that Mark introduces his gospel. He starts out with, this is, Jesus, this is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Good news. It's good news. Well, why is it good news? Well, it's good news because God is coming for a visit. Now, if you look at this title, God, uh, Jesus is described in terms of absolute deity. He's called the Christ. Uh, the, that's the Messiah, the anointed one. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, you see that in the New Testament, it is a term of deity. He's called the Son of God. That means he is absolutely equal with God. He is God. Then we scroll down to verse 3, and Mark's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 says, uh, make way or make a path straight for the Lord. The Lord is coming. The word Lord there is Jehovah. And Jesus is called Jehovah. He is absolute deity. As we get further into it, he simply says, somebody more powerful is coming to, uh, than I am. 
I am not worthy to tie his shoes. Be ready. The Lord God is coming. Awesome words. But then we get down to verse 9. What a paradox. Who shows up? Jesus from Nazareth, the Galilean. This guy? This normal guy? And what Mark does is he takes these two titles, the title in verse 1, which speaks about absolute deity, then the title in verse 9, which speaks about absolute humanity, human terms, humble terms, and he lets us know that God has come disguised in human flesh, wearing the sunglasses of humanity, God incognito, God coming in secret, away from prying eyes. When Jesus starts his ministry, he does it around Galilee. Galilee was an obscure part of the Roman Empire, of Judea, very far north. Jesus is ministering unnoticed, away from private eyes. And who does he pick at first? He picks, he picks 12 men, regular men, not the kind of men a king would pick, no soldiers, no religious leaders, he picks fishermen. He picks a tax collector. The kingdom of God doesn't come with fanfare in a parade, but it comes with the gradual gathering of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed part of Galilee. Humble beginnings is where our message starts. And who does Jesus surround himself with? Well, he surrounds himself with people who are on the outside the people that the religious leaders would consider on the periphery, outsiders. He's eating with drunks. He's eating with tax collectors. He's eating with the immoral, with prostitutes, with women. He doesn't invite the religious leaders to his party. He doesn't want them around, and they're going to come up to him. He's going to say, hey, I didn't come to call the self-righteous. I came to call those who have needs, those who, need, who are sick, who need a physician. And so these religious leaders reject him, and they immediately begin to plot a way to kill him. Now, we know the story. Jesus starts traveling down from Galilee to Jerusalem, knowing full well that the shadow of the cross looms ahead. He goes willingly knowing that he is going to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He gets there, the Jewish leaders, they reject him. Um, he's falsely accused. He's going to be tried in a kangaroo court. And he's going to, this innocent man, this sinless man, is going to die a criminal's death. And with that, another religious movement is crushed by the Roman Empire in Judea. His disciples scatter. They're hidden. They're crying. But as S.M. Lockridge said, he's a famous preacher, it might be Friday, but Sunday's coming. We have to realize that this message came from humble beginnings, but it becomes an irresistible message. And the message is this. He is risen. That's the message. He is risen. Don't, don't ever... Let that get away from you. Don't ever let it become routine or mundane. It is the core of everything we do.
It is the core of the irresistible nature of this message. He is risen. The grave is empty. Eyewitnesses saw that. And because he is written, because he is risen, we have an irresistible message. And I think it's irresistible in, uh, in several ways. First of all, it's irresistible because the message came from God. It's something that God gave us. It's not something that man invented. Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that this message, this gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It came from God. But it is also based on the historical truth of the resurrection. He raised. It's, our faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's based on historical fact. And because it's based on historical fact, on the resurrection of Christ, it's a, it, it addresses the three greatest needs of men. It addresses them. And I think these needs are this. Um, man needs to be reconciled to his creator. We know from the Old Testament that God created man for fellowship. We know that Adam fell. We know that when Adam fell, that created uh, uh, enemies with God, that man and God were separated, and uh, they couldn't fellowship, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But through the cross, Christ reconciles man to God, Ephesians chapter 2. Reconcile means to make friends. He tells us in Romans chapter 5 that God was in Christ when Christ was on the cross, reconciling man to God. So what happens is believers now, through the death of Christ and his resurrection, become friends of God. The other need that's addressed is the need for forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14, in whom, talking about Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Now, some people are going to think, what's the big deal with that? But to the woman at the well, to the woman caught in adultery, to the tax collector, to the apostle Paul, to the drug addict, to the person struggling in their life, to a person dealing with broken marriages and broken relationships, it means everything. Because through forgiveness, our past is erased and we have transformation. The forgiveness of sins. The last uh, need that it's going to be addressed is the fear of death. I think we've seen that since last year, the fear of death. I'm going to tell us in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 that man's greatest fear is death, and the one who holds the power over death is Satan. Man fears death, the mystery of death. But through the death of Jesus Christ, and especially through his resurrection, Satan is defeated, death is defeated. And Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So it addresses all these wonderful needs. It is irresistible. And an irresistible message needs to be told in an irresistible way. As I was reading through the book of Acts, I was very interested in looking how, particularly Paul, because it's going to spend a little bit more time with Paul, how Paul witnessed or testified about Christ to a pagan culture. And I was reading this, I wrote down three words, three words I'm going to share with you. The first word is honor. Whenever Paul addressed Rome, uh, uh, pagan Romans in their culture, he dealt with them out of kindness and with honor. He treated them well. He never came in with a sledgehammer trying to demolish them. 
trying to beat them over the head. He was not interested in demolition. He was interested in transformation. That's what he was interested in. So he treats all these kings he goes before, all these pagans he goes before in chapter 28. When he gets before these Roman governors, he treats them with absolute honor. That's something that we need to do. The second word is the word focused. These guys are focused on one singular thing, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, believe in him. That was their focus. They didn't go off on tangents. They weren't worrying about going from city to city, hanging up the Ten Commandments. They weren't worrying about going from city to city and saying, well, we need to have prayer in school. That'll fix things. No, those, can't, those might be nice things, but they don't give us transformation. We have to be focused on one thing, and the message is Jesus Christ crucified. We have to be careful we don't go off on tangents, whether it's political tangents or any other kind of tangents. That is not the message that we have been given. Now, the third word is the word testify, the word witness. They spoke about Jesus. And what God has done is he's taken ordinary people and he allows them to tell this extraordinary story. You know how Paul most often told people about Christ? He told a story. He simply told how he was saved. Peter did the same thing. They used scripture and they told what happened to them. They told their story. And everybody in here who's a believer, you all have a salvation story, don't you? Your story might be that your mom or your dad or Sunday school teacher when you were five years old led you to Christ. It might be that you were snatched out of meth addiction. It's the same story. Jesus saved you. So you might say, oh, I'm scared to witness. I don't know how to tell people about Christ. I wish I had the power that they had. But you do. You just tell your story. Now, I know firsthand that this works. And I shared with the first uh, service, and I, I hate to tell stories from personal experience because you've got to be very careful that that the person telling the story isn't built up as a hero because the hero of the story is God, not the two teenagers I'm going to talk about. Um, and I'm one of them, one of, I, as flawed as I could be. I was saved in the summer of 1969. And in, in, my cousin led me to the Lord in 1969. through 19, I had dramatic changes in the summer of 1969 uh, through uh, uh, 1970. There's a lot of things that happened that I have to share some other time. I want to focus on the late spring and summer of 1970 going and then through 72, where I was becoming 15 and 16 years old. God had placed on my heart a burden, a passion to share Christ to hippies. My sister had been saved out of the hippie culture. She was in it. I was right on the precipice of that culture. All my friends were, I'm talking about real hippies now. All my friends were in that culture. Uh, the people I hung out in high, with in high school, remember high school, they were all hippies. So I had a passion for that. Our church told us to stay away from hippies. I wanted to go see them and lead them to Christ. Fifteen years old. I didn't know how to do it. So God brought into my life a guy that I led to the Lord by the name of Terry who had a rock band. That's a story in of itself, and one of these days I'll get to share, but you see the hand of God working. Terry accepted Christ as a Savior. He was transformed immediately too. And we all had, both had a passion to share Christ to the hippies. 
And every Sunday after church for that summer and the next few summers, we would go out and share hippies, go out right where they were and tell them about Jesus Christ. We would dress like them. Now, Terry already looked the part. He was tall. He had the bushy hair. He dressed like a rock and roller. If you ever go online and Google the lead singer for the band Nazareth, that's who he looked like. Looked just like this guy. And um, I, however, I, however, was 16 years old, but I looked 12 years old. I, I did not look the part. So I went out, and I got some tie-dye jeans, and I got some sandals. We went to the mall, and I got some hippie shirts, you know, down to here. I even got, the, got this ridiculous uh, little band that I put on my head. And I even went out and got these little John Lennon granny glasses. Now, they were fake, but I put them on. And even though I still looked like a ridiculous 12-year-old, we looked apart and out we went. And we went where the hippies were. Westgate Shopping Center. They were always there looking for coin. Always there. After that, we went to Ottawa Park. They were always at Ottawa Park. And you could, we would take Terry's van. We would pull in there. We would engage them. We never attacked their culture. We never hit them over the head. We just told him about Christ. And we would actually open up the back of Terry's van. He had two big speakers in there. And we would use it as church. It was church time for the hippies. We didn't use organ music or the great music we did here. We announced church was on by playing Led Zeppelin. They would come around us. And all we did is we went out and we engaged them. We talked to them. We told them our story. I can tell you this, that summer from 1970 through 1972, 36 kids came to Christ. I kept count. I don't know why. I just did. I kept count. And here's the other thing. You never know who your message is going to reach. I still, to this day, will sometimes get emails or messages in Messenger that'll say, you did this with Terry in 1970, and just this week, uh, this last Tuesday. Um, A lot of times, people tell you after they speak, you get these spiritual highs, and you get hit with these little blues. And on Tuesday, I'm feeling a little bit down, a little bit melancholy, you know, feeling a little pouty. And uh, I'm sitting there, you know, I'm on Facebook, doing my thing, and I get a message. And right away, I recognize the name from 50 years ago. And I open it up. Now, she would have been 15 years old then. She's probably 64 now. And it says, in the 70s, you saved my soul. Right down here. Corner of Ariel and Hannaford. She said, I think you need to know that. It was a God thing. And understand, I never knew she accepted Christ. I knew her. I had talked to her. But I never sat down with her like they do and lead them to Christ. She just heard the word. So you never know where this irresistible word is taking seed. So you just tell your story. And this is proof that from humble beginnings comes an irresistible message. This is our last point that is unstoppable. It can't be stopped. It wasn't stopped in her life. And with this, we get back to Paul's story. Um, all through the book of Acts, we've seen the hand of God working. Remember, we're building off of Romans 8.28. God works in all things. Now, we've seen that. We've seen that in the book of Acts. 
But also in the book of Acts, there's another force working. All throughout the book of Acts, Satan is working through men to stop the progression of this gospel. But this message of salvation will not be stopped. It won't be stopped from the absence of Christ. Christ went away. It won't be stopped from by persecution. These are all things that happen in the book of Acts. It won't be stopped by persecution. It won't be stopped by poor leadership. Um, it won't be stopped by um, results that we weren't expecting. The results are bad. It won't be stopped by politics or politicians. It is unstoppable. No force is going to do it. So last we left Paul, he's in his barracks. Remember, Jesus is encouraging him. He tells him for the first time, you're going to go to Rome. Paul now knows, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to die on the way. I'm going to Rome. But this is in chapter 23. But you get to chapter 23 and verse 11, verse 12, excuse me, and what's happening? You've got 40 guys planning an assassination, an assassination plot against Paul. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that I could not be a member of that gang. My wife's saying, well, that's a good thing. Because, you know, they, they get together and they go like this, you know, you know, we're going to find Paul. Yeah. When we find him, we're going to kill him. Yeah. We're not going to eat or drink for 40 days. I'm out of here. Here's the, I would not last. I would not last five minutes. Brandy, you know that. I wouldn't last. There's a drive through Let's go through it. But these guys are going to plot to kill Paul. And look who comes to his rescue as you read in chapter 23. Remember our friend, the commander? Our friend, the commander, Lysias. He hears about it, and he rescues Paul once again from certain death. And in the dead of night, he takes, what a sight this had to be. He takes Paul out, surrounded by 470 men, some of them on horseback, some of them with spears, and they take Paul to the proconsul, the governor, Felix. Unstoppable the hand of God. Now, eventually, Felix is going to hear Paul's story, and he's going to hear Paul witness to him, and Paul treats him with honor, but he gets the bright idea that I'm going to put Paul in prison, well, for two years. I was reading down, thinking, did these guys not eat for two years? I, I don't know. We'll find out. That's just, that's just the way my mind works. But anyways, he's going to put him in prison for two years, and can you imagine the Jewish people, the, Jews, the Jewish leaders are thinking, we have finally stopped him. We may not be able to kill him, but we sure can stop him. So Paul is placed in this prison. Could they stop him? He gives the gospel to guards. He gives the gospel to prisoners. They come and go. They leave. They share the gospel with somebody else. They share the gospel with another person. And so it still spreads even when he's in prison. Now there's something else that's happening here. I don't want you to miss it. Remember last week, Paul had been severely beaten to the point of death? Well, over this two-year period, Paul is going to heal, get stronger for the final lap, the final push towards Rome. So eventually, after two years, Paul is going to go before a new governor by the name of Festus. I don't know where they come up with these names. He's going to, uh, you know, he's going to go before Festus, and he's going to go before King Agrippa. Now, they know Paul is innocent. He's done nothing worthy of death. But Paul knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, they're going to murder him. So he appeals to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now, if you remember last week, Paul was born a Roman citizen, something very rare for a Jew. The hand of God had been working in his past through his father, 
even in his childhood. And once you appealed to, once you appealed to, to Caesar, a Roman citizen had that right. You could appeal to Caesar, you got to stand before Caesar, and he made the final judgment. Off you went on this cruise at the expense of the Roman Empire. So they say, off to Caesar you will go. So finally, in the end of chapter 26 and chapter 27, Paul is placed on this boat to Rome. And it's, it's almost comedy at all the mishaps that happen. Um, they get in the ship, and right away they're battered by a hurricane that lasts for days. Just keeps battering them. And while all these guys are freaking out, they're throwing stuff overboard to keep from sinking, what's Paul doing? He's praying. He's telling them about Jesus. And then what's the next thing that happens? Well, you know, the end of chapter 27, beginning of chapter 28, they're shipwrecked. Imagine that. Shipwrecked. Gee, something else. And then once they get on this island, the island of Malta, what happens? Paul's gathering firewood, and he gets bitten by a snake. Snakes! Now I was thinking about this. We got our assassins. We got our storms, our hurricanes. Okay, we got our shipwreck. And now we got snakes. To me, this is a little bit like Wiley e. Coyote. It's like, it's like the devil is Wiley, the coyote and the roadrunner. It's like the devil is Wiley e. Coyote. Always trying to set up traps. Always trying to slow down the roadrunner. Always trying to get a hold of them. The roadrunner, he's the hand of God. Always thwarting, uh, thwarting the coyote. Always thwarting Satan. Always one step ahead. Understand this, God is always one step ahead. So Paul does the most Paul thing he, he could do. He just looks at this snake dangling on his hand. He shakes it off in the fire, and these fellows looking at him, they go, you want to watch him to see if he swells up and dies? Well, yeah, sure, I want to watch. Only Paul doesn't. So they figure out, we must have us a God here. So they said, let's send him off to the chief. So they take Paul to the chief. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is in chapter 28. Paul is taken to this pagan, these are pagans, he's taken to this pagan chief. And Luke never records for us a gospel message. Now, there's no doubt that he gave him the gospel. You know, he, he would have done, that's a Paul thing. But Luke wants us to focus on something else, a different kind of sermon. Paul gives them a sermon of kindness. What does he do? He uses his spiritual gift and he heals the father of the chief. He heals all the people that start coming to him. He gives them honor and kindness, and he shares with outsiders, with pagans, his spiritual gift. And there's a lesson for us. So I always say, when you're reading your Bible, keep a notebook. You can write these things down that you see. There's, there's a lesson here. We do need to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we need to do it with kindness with honor, and take our spiritual gifts and use them with our neighbors and those on the outside. And we've got an opportunity to do that next week with Hiawatha and Monac. We've got those opportunities. So these guys, you know, Paul does his healing. They get everything together. Uh, they fix the boat. They give Paul everything he needs to finish the trip. And off Paul goes. He's going he's gonna to finally finish this trip. And he's on his way. There's some other things that happen. I'm not really uh, going to get into that. He meets some people that encourage him. But I want to get uh, to chapter 28, verse 14. 
Paul finally arrives in Rome because we've got to land this plane. And just this phrase, some translations say it different. This is more literal. And so we came to Rome. I love the way Luke writes this because what he's doing is he's looking backwards. And probably looking backwards to Paul, but maybe even beyond Paul to the beginning of the book of Acts that he wrote. And so we came to Rome. All these things that tried to stop us, all these setbacks, everything that tried to end this, but it was unstoppable. We could not be stopped. Unstoppable. So Paul arrives to Rome. And as he gets to Rome, he looks out. He jumps off the boat, jumps off the ship. He immediately runs to Caesar, leads Caesar to Christ, and all of Rome is saved. Is that what happens? No. What happens? He's put back in prison. It's, it's in a house, but it's house arrest, and he's chained to a guard. It's not what I was expecting. It's kind of anticlimactic. I thought he was going to do all these powerful things, but here he's chained to this guy in a house, and these guards would work four-hour shifts. So 24 hours, maybe, maybe six guards, and you were chained by ankle and by arm. And so it looks like Paul has stopped again. But is he? Because not only is Paul chained to the guard, the guard is chained to Paul. Can you imagine being chained to Paul? Understand, understand right here, Paul, Paul uh, dictated he, the, the letters of, of, of Philippians and Philemon. Uh, since he's chained, he would bring in what was called an amanuensis. He would transcribe whatever Paul was saying. And so Paul would dictate these letters. And these guys are hearing this stuff. So the guard goes home at night. Wife says, so how was your day, dear? Well, you know, I was chained to the most unusual fellow. You know, he talked about a guy named Jesus, who was God, who came into this world. He died for my sins on the cross and rose again. We can have our sins forgiven, dear. We, can, we don't have to fear death. Death is gain. Now, he says this to all these other guards. Guards are in the military, so they're often transferred out to other posts. So these families move to other posts, and they tell other families, and they tell others, and they tell others, and they tell others, and they tell others. You see the subtle way that this irresistible message is unstoppable? It can't be stopped. And then at the end of the book, Paul calls in the Jewish leaders. He's learned his lesson from chapter 23. He deals with them with kindness. He's very gentle with them this time. And he pleads with them out of compassion to be saved, to accept Christ. And what happens? They keep coming back to hear more. And it tells us that more and more Jews were saved. But more importantly, as we get to the very end of the book, the very end of the book here, it tells us in, in verse 30, for two whole years Paul stayed there, in his own rented house. He rented it, but he's under guard. He's chained and welcomed all who came to see him. He welcomed them. People were coming to see him again and again. And I was thinking about, very quickly, I'm just going to give you three words, at how Paul talked to them. That's how we need to talk. Paul talked with a clarity that engaged people. He was bold, but not bombastic. There is a difference. He spoke with conviction. He knew what he believed 
and why he believed it. More importantly, he spoke with compassion. These people were happy to see him. They weren't chased away by him. They came to him, and that's how we talk to people. Clarity, conviction, and compassion. Now, the very last word in the book, as we said at the beginning, is unhindered, unstoppable. This isn't by accident. The author Luke did this on purpose because he wants us to reflect on this word. See, when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts does not, there's no ending. It's an open ending. It just never ends. And it gives you like the old TV shows when to be the end of the season, to be continued. It gives us a to be continued. And what he wants us to do is to put ourselves into the book of Acts, to live our story in the book of Acts. You see, we are the witnesses. We are now living in the book of Acts. We are now to be continued. So what I want you to do if you, have, uh, if you have your notes here, at the very bottom, you have a little, little note here, here that says, write your story. What will you do to become unstoppable? Now, Paul, when he decided to go to Jerusalem and Rome, yes, the hand of God was working, but Paul also set goals. He was determined to do it. And when you set goals, you step out and do it. Then you find out that God is the one behind it. But you still got to do it. And that's what Paul did. So what I'd like us to do is sometime this week, this afternoon, whatever, is write down some goals on how you can continue living in the book of Acts, sharing the gospel, specific goals. Uh, you can share it with your spouse. You can share it with your friends. Uh, you can make one goal, two goals, ten goals, whatever you want to do, or you might just want to write it down and keep it to yourself. It's just between you and God. But set goals because when we set goals, we just step out and do it, and we become unstoppable. Dear ones, God has given us an incredible message, a wonderful message, a message that heals, a message that changes lives. God stepped down from heaven. He became a man. He died for our sins on the cross and rose again. Believe in him, you're saved. Reject him, you're lost. Real simple message. That's what was given to us. And iris, uh, from a humble beginnings comes an irresistible message that is unstoppable. Will you live in the unstoppable?